that good news? I'm looking around here and I don't offend anybody, but I don't see any uh, um, um, ethnic Jews in here. So that this is a great news for us, isn't it? Uh, since uh, I think we're all Gentiles in some way or another here this morning. So, well, um, I hope you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. You're going to need it, as always. Uh, we're going to be flipping around. I want you to see it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. Uh, the title of our message this morning is The Biblical View on Tongues. The Biblical View on Tongues. Uh, as we work through the book of Acts, uh, this subject has come up at least four times. Uh, in each of the instances, I, I, I briefly dealt with the subject and the importance of it in its context. Okay? And I promise to come back and do a one standalone sermon with the subject of tongues in a little more detail. So I'm keeping my promise. I want you to know that I'm keeping my promise as I try to always to keep my promises. That was a promise I made. Um, and, and I can just tell you right now, um, uh, as I was trying to uh, put this all together, this is going to be a tough task in one sermon. I just want to let, let you know that it will be a tough task in one sermon. But I hope it whets your, I hope it whets your appetite uh, to study this more uh, uh, in more depth. Uh, so before we look at the scriptures, we, we need to examine this morning. Let me say a few things in the way of a little background. I also want to tell you that I'm probably going to be more tied to my notes than normal this morning. So don't think that I'm ignoring you. I just know we have a lot to get through. I have much many more notes this morning than I normally do. And some of you are going, uh-oh. All right. But I, I think it's important. I didn't want to divide this up in two messages. I was afraid that if I did that, we would, it, people would hear half of it and not the other half. I think it needs to be seen in its context altogether. So with that said, here we go. I was first subjected to the subject of tongues when I was a freshman in college. I walked into a dorm room one night and some strange noises were coming from the lips of some buddies of mine and their fellow football players. And it wasn't cursing, okay? Um, I, I, of course, inquired what they were doing. They told me they were praying in tongues and to stand back a little bit because the guy they were praying for was getting ready to fall down. They let me know this. And I would later come to discover that they called this falling down being slain in the Spirit. Sure enough, in a few minutes, this guy um, that these guys were praying these strange words over fell down. I still look back at that in, in my naivety. How did they know he was going to fall down? There's a little clue right there. How would they know he's going to fall down? They shouldn't have. It was a work of God. All right, let me move on. All right. Um, I began to drill these guys with questions. Uh, they took me to their church with them, and I, I, witnessed, I witnessed a guy stand up in the church service, open his mouth. Again, strange noises coming out of his mouth. I asked my friend, I leaned over, what the world's going on? He said, well, he's, he's speaking in tongues, and then when he's done, somebody else is going to stand up and tell us what he said. And, and sure enough, when this one guy who was speaking strange words, they call him speaking in tongues, sat down, another guy stood up and told, him, told us what he said. Now, I went to that church for a little while, and this seemed to happen like every Sunday, maybe not one or two, but multiple times. And, and uh, so I, I, I love the Lord at this time in my life, as I still do, and I wanted to grow closer to him. I had a passion to grow. I didn't want to miss out on anything that the Lord might have for me to know him more and be closer to him. So I was really intrigued by this. Uh, so I asked a lot more questions, and they gave me books to read about tongues. And I was encouraged to ask God to give me the gift of tongues, and it would, be, it would make me closer to God. It would give me a, I'd be on a higher spiritual plane. So, so I asked God to give me the gift of tongues every day 
for about a year. And, and I pursued it and pursued it and pursued it. If anybody would have gotten the gift of tongues on earnestness, it would have been me. I, I, and it, but it just wasn't happening. It didn't happen. They even at one point told me, you're, just, you're, you're fighting. Just open your mouth and just start letting words come out. And I tried that. No words came out. Uh, just nothing. Just, and nothing came out. And uh, so, so I, I was discussing these things with my parents on the phone. And back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. We didn't have text. We, I'd call them like once a week and it cost a lot of money all right, to call them. And I'd call them and was discussing these things um, on the phone. And my mom even wrote me a letter. And I have that letter right here. I think I've shared with you all this before. This is, my mom wrote me this letter. Postmarked October 28th, 1986. Right there, right there. I still got half, the, the envelope. It's kind of torn up right there. I've kept this all these years. Not just for the subject that it was about, but just because my mom wrote it. And you see my mom's great love for the Lord in these in these words, I'm not going to read all of them to you. She pointed me some different passage and encouraged me. And, and, uh, but here's how she ended her letter. I'm very happy that you are abiding in the word as John 15.10 tells us that we should. As John 15 says, we, we can bear fruit only if we are abiding in our Father and keeping his commandments. Continue with your Bible study. And God will lead you in understanding and show you the way he would lead you in your life. Love always, Mom. And I pray I'll never lose that letter, not just for the contents, but because of what it taught me. And I kept pursuing these things. I kept reading books. And when I was done with, I don't know how many books I'd read, I finally decided to take my mom's advice. And just go to the Word of God. Put all the other books down. And just go to his book, the Bible. And I began to study and study and study. And after much time uh, doing this, after about a year, I came to the conclusion that the Bible did not teach that everyone did not, or everyone did, let me put it this way. I, I began, I began to, to see the Bible didn't teach what they were telling me. That everyone was to speak in tongues. And that, as many people will tell you. It's funny, Paul didn't agree with that either. We don't all speak in tongues, do we? With the, with, with the, the obvious answer is no. He does with it all the gifts. No. And I began to realize, hold on, they're telling me everyone should speak in tongues. And that's not what the Bible taught. And I began to study. And no, that's not right. I also committed to keep studying the, the scripture on this subject. So for the last over 29 years, I've studied the subject of tongues off and on and a little bit every single year. That means I've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours studying the subject. I give you this background because I want you to know I'm not unfamiliar with the subject as far as physically witnessing it, nor am I unfamiliar with it as far as what the Bible teaches about the subject. I also did not come to my understanding of the biblical view of tongues overnight. I decided as with every other subject, I would let God's word, the Bible, speak in context for my understanding of tongues. So our goal this morning in relation to the subject of tongues is what Paul exhorted Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.15. Okay, I'm 
There we go. All right. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Or your translation may say, accurately dividing the word of truth or cutting it straight. This should be our goal. We must, let the, we must not let experience or emotion dictate what we believe. They must be subject to the word of God. I also want you to know that I, I do not believe that those who have a different view on tongues than I do, or you might have, are, are not Christians. I don't believe that. I'm not saying they're not a Christian if they believe differently. I will say this. If they believe you have to speak in tongues to be made right with God, to be saved, to be justified, I believe they're a heretic. I'll just say that. It's wrong. It's wrong. That's a work. And it takes away that we're being saved by grace through faith. So if you want to get me excited about it, go ahead and tell me that. All right? Um, it's wrong. And anybody who teaches that, and a lot of them on TV teach that, they're heretics. They don't believe the gospel. That's not good news. Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's adding to salvation. It's Jesus plus something. And you all know, if you've been here any time, my math, and the Bible's math on this, Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you add this or anything else to Jesus, it's an insult to him. And so when I hear that, that's wrong. They're just wrong. Now, there's some people who truly love Jesus, and they don't believe that. They don't believe that everybody has to speak in tongues. And if they believe they're saved by grace through faith alone, they're my brother and sister in Christ. We can walk together. We can serve the Lord together, even though we may disagree on this subject. So I also realize that, that many of you here this morning may disagree with what I will present as the biblical view of tongues. I ask you to listen intently and allow the Bible itself to teach you on the subject. Make sure that your view on the subject is based on a thorough study using the literal, historical, grammatical, grammatical contextual method of studying the Bible. Let me say that again. Make sure that your view on the subject is based on a thorough study using the literal, historical, grammatical, contextual method of studying the Bible. There's no other way to study the Bible. Others may, here may agree with the biblical conclusions I draw from the Bible. And I ask you to make sure that you arrive at the conclusions based on the Bible as well. Not just because I teach them or someone else you like teaches them. Others have no idea what they really believe about tongues. They were like me when I was a freshman in college. I mean, I was just clueless of anything. And, and, or, or you're not sure where you stand. You just, so I ask you to listen intently again and allow the Bible itself to teach you on this subject. Don't read books about it. Because if somebody's a good author, they can convince you anything they want to convince you of. And that's what happened to me. Not just on this subject, but lots of subjects. I think I've told you all about that. I was reading books right and left in college. I never read a book at all, hardly at all, in, in high school because I was a terrible reader. And then I began turned on different books. And I began reading books instead of the Bible. And man, my theology was all over the place. I believed whatever the author said because he quoted the Bible and loved Jesus, he said. So don't, don't let books, let the Bible teach you what it says about this subject. My guess is that some of you, uh, um, what I show here this morning from God's Word, you're going to be familiar with concerning tongues. Oh, I've seen that before. Here's what you're going to say, and that's good. However, it's highly likely that you will learn some new insight on what the Bible teaches concerning tongues. I also want to give a, a disclaimer. I will not be able to cover every aspect of what the Bible teaches on tongues, nor answer, answer every single question you might have this morning. It's impossible. And so that's just a disclaimer. Oh, he didn't answer this, or he didn't say this. I know, I know, I know. I didn't. <laughs> There's no way we can do that. However, I'm going to cover enough that you can clearly see the main and most important aspects of the biblical view on tongues. How's that on the way, uh, by way of introduction? All right, but I needed to say all those things because they're important. 
as we dive into God's word this morning. And something even more important than that, let's go to God and ask him to help us this morning as only he can. Lord, we are at your mercy as always um, to humbly come and sit under your word and not over it. To look at your word honestly and then ask you to open our hearts and our minds um, to the truth that you would have us know. Lord, help us know you more. May our pursuit not just be knowledge, but to be you. And know your amazing love for us, your amazing grace, your amazing power in our lives. So Lord, help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's turn our attention here to what God's Word, the Bible, teaches concerning tongues. So in order to do this, I'm going to ask and answer three questions. If you're a note-taker, here you go. And if you're not a note-taker, this might be the morning you take notes. Uh, Three questions concerning the biblical view on tongues so that we can have a biblical understanding of the subject of tongues. Here's the three questions. I'll give them to you up front. What is the gift of tongues? That's question number one. Number two, what is the purpose of tongues? And number three, is the gift of tongues for today? One more time. What is the gift of tongues? What is the purpose of tongues? Is the gift of tongues for today? So let's start with the first question. What is the gift of tongues? To begin to answer this question, turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. If you've been here for any length of time for the last 20 years, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. It feels like that. The last couple years, I guess. We've seen this. We've encountered tongues in our study of Acts and Acts 2. And I just want to read verses 1 through 11 of Acts 2 again. Just so we just get this context as we dive in. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2, down through verse 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred the crowd came together and were bewildered because of one of because one each of them each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language they were amazed and astonished saying why are not all these why are not all these who are speaking Galileans and how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia Pontus and Asia Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the uh, districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own language speaking the mighty deeds of God. And I'll go ahead and read verses 12 and 13. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. So the picture here is Jews from all the world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate, to celebrate Pentecost, which they did every year. Uh, they spoke all different kinds of Gentile languages because they had been dispersed. The nation of Israel had been dispersed a couple of different times. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom had been taken captive by the Assyrians. In 586, the third wave, or the last conquering of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom was taken in captivity by Babylonians. So they spread all over the place. And they spoke as their normal tongue, Gentile languages. All right, So they come, and, and during this particular Pentecost, the celebration, they were part of something that had never happened before. God gifted the apostles. This is with the giving, giving the Holy Spirit that he promised that they, he would indwell them for the very first time. And others, the apostles and others to miraculously speak language fluently that they had never studied before. 
They were different Gentile languages of the, of the Jews. Uh, or di- they were different gen- Gentile languages. And th- that these Jews from all over spoke. All right? and they, they, so they heard, and they, actually the apostles and others spoke in the, a language. They had never been trained before. They would never studied. And they were able to miraculously, fluently, not like me speaking Russian or, 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 or uh, Spanish, all right? But fluently speak in a language they'd never studied before. It was a miracle. That's what happened. These people who came in their, kind of their native tongue now, many of them still spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, especially when they went to the synagogue, all right? Because that's the only thing that God's word was read in at the time was in Hebrew. So they, uh, they, they, they heard this and saw this miraculous thing. And in fact, in verses 9 through 11, it gives a list of languages that were being spoken. I just read those. Also notice the content of the message being spoken in all these, la- all these languages. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So it's obvious from this passage the gift of speaking in tongues was the miraculous ability to speak fluently in a foreign language that was previously unknown to the one speaking. This has always been the understanding throughout church history of the gift of tongues. And in regards to Acts 2, this is still the understanding. All right? It's also been the understanding throughout church history that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 were the same as those which occurred in Acts 2. That is until the early 1900s. You can go check me on this. I'm making this stuff up. This was when the Pentecostal movement began in the U.S., which came out of the holiness movement in England. All right? Charles Fox Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M, the founder of modern Pentecostalism, believed that the gift of tongues was the gift to speak real foreign languages never studied before by the speaker. He and his students at Bethel College were convinced of this, so much so that, when, that they went to the foreign mission field and began, well, actually went, somebody went to China because they thought they were speaking Chinese. And guess what happened when they got there? Miraculously, they weren't speaking Chinese. Even one of them was supposed to be writing in tongues and was supposed to be writing a foreign language. And linguistics studied it, and it was no foreign language. So they backed up, and they go, oh my goodness. We thought these were real languages that were speaking like they did in Acts 2, because that's what it teaches in Acts 2. What are we going to do? Well, they reversed their previous understanding and said it was unintelligible, ecstatic speech. That's what it was, from God. This then became some people's interpretation of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, 14, and they said then it was different than Acts 2. With that said, it's important for us to look at, at the contents, some of the contents in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and what it teaches concerning tongues. And just so you know uh, up front, and there'll be, th- that there'll be no doubt, all right, as to what I believe the gift of tongues are in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, let me state up front. After nearly 30 years of studying this subject, I'm more convinced now than ever that tongues mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is not different from the tongues mentioned in Acts. It's the exact same gift, the miraculous ability to speak fluently in a real foreign language that was previously not known to the one speaking. Do you all understand what I believe? After 30 years of study, I'm more convinced of that truth today than I ever have been before. And I think if you're open to the Word of God, I really believe it's the only conclusion you can come to. You think, well, that's pretty bold. I, I just believe that's what it is. And I, and I think it's based on God's word. So let me show you why I believe this. The first reason the gift of tongues and acts in 1 Corinthians are the same is 
if you're taking notes, terminology. Terminology. Both Acts and 1 Corinthians use the same terminology when discussing tongues. Both use a combination of the word leo, which means to speak, and the word glossa, which means language or physical tongue. It's sometimes used as a, as a physical tongue, and that's in James. He speaks about the tongue, all right? When describing, so it's, it's the, these words leo, to speak, glossa meaning language when describing the act of speaking in tongues. It would lessen the confusion if our English translation would use the word language instead of tongue. I think that's really confusing. Because it makes tongue, what's a tongue? Well, we, we use it. well they, they speak in a different tongue than we do. And nobody would say, oh, that must be an angelic language or that must be some gibberish. No, they must speak a different language, real language than we do. Because that's the way we use this word today. Language. We don't use it like we do sometimes. Sometimes you, you, they speak with a forked tongue. All right, you probably heard that. That's what the Indians say, right? That man speaks with a forked tongue. All right, we, we use it sometimes. We just use the word language. They speak a different language than we do. So it would help a lot if our English translations translated as it, what it means is language. All right, when it, when it doesn't mean the physical tongue. All right, little red rebel right here. All right, we talked about him in James. Um, neither the word leo to speak or glossa language ever imply ecstatic What's ecstatic mean? Ecstatic means experience of a mystical self-transcendence. All right, ecstatic. Neither one of those words ever imply ecstatic or unintelligible speech. All right? Let me, let me show you here uh, a quote by Thomas Edgar. There is no evidence in secular Greek or class, of classical or in corny times, corny Greek is what they speak in the New Testament, nor in pre-Christian Judaism, nor in the biblical Greek of the Septuagint, Septuagint was the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament. That glossa, right, language, was used to mean ecstatic into unintelligible speech. Such speech, although common to pagan religion, was not described by glossa, but other terms such as phlegomai, thank you, uh, which were available in the Greek language. The New Testament also uses the word glossa in the normally accepted sense of the physical tongue or human language. Leo is used approximately 295 times in the New Testament. Sixty of these are in the book of Acts, excluding the 30 instances where Leo is used for speaking in tongues. 265 instances remain. None of these seem to refer to a static, unintelligible speech. All right, they're just not used that way. Never. Not only not in the Bible, but also not in any other Greek language or Greek documents are these words are ever used for ecstatic, unintelligible speech. It's some people would have you believe that that's what's taught in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and no place else in any Greek literature. Amazing, all right? But therefore, the terminology used by both Luke and Paul argue against ecstatic, unintelligible speech. The second reason the gift of tongues and acts in 1 Corinthians are the same is not only terminology, number two, date of writings. The date of writings, the date of when Luke and, and uh, when Acts and 1 Corinthians was written. As you study the book of Acts, and as we've done this, we see that Paul and Luke traveled together and they've got a very close relationship. They were super tight, very, very close. Um, Luke wrote Acts about five years, it's important, five years before 1 Corinthians. It's very important to understand that. He wrote the book of Acts five years, I'm sorry, not before, think, think, five years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So Acts, although it's before 1 Corinthians in the, in, in the New Testament, it's actually after chronologically when it was written. 
All right, it's highly unlikely that Luke would use the exact same terminology in Acts that Paul used in 1 Corinthians if Paul was speaking of what Paul was speaking of was different from what occurred in Acts. Why would Luke use the same language with no explanation? All right? As Paul had already used when he wrote the book. And, 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 and Luke knew that. He had been with him during this time. When he wrote 1 Corinthians, he knew what he wrote. He knew what had happened and what was going on. Why would he use the exact same language with no explanation if they were going to be different? And why would Paul, who knew what happened at the day of Pentecost, all right, why would he use different, why would he use the exact same language to explain what was going on in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 if it was different than Acts 2? All right, why would he use the same language? And we always say they wouldn't have. They would have made it clear that it was different. And yet they don't. And they knew each other. They were teaching the same thing. The third reason of the gifts, of t- the gifts and tongues and acts in 1 Corinthians are the same is both passages directly, let me say this again, directly, maybe saying this explicitly, point to speaking in tongues as, a, as known foreign languages. Not just Acts 2, but also 1 Corinthians. I want to show you this. It's important. I want you to miss this. Both passages directly or explicitly point to speaking in tongues as known foreign languages. As I mentioned before in Acts 2, it's clear uh, about this and and even lists the number of languages that were spoken in verses 9 through 11. We see that. Nobody argues with Acts 2 not being real foreign languages. They were miraculously able to speak. Nobody argues that. All right, let's look at this. Both passages refer to Isaiah 28, 11. All right, both of them. Um, Acts 2, 4, the phrase other tongues is taken from the Septuagint, the Greek old, translation of the Old Testament, uh, translation uh, of Isaiah 28, 11. Other tongues, all right, it's the same Greek words used in Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah 28 again here in a second. Isaiah 28, 11, all right? And then Paul actually quotes Isaiah 28, 11 in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. All right, and you can, if you go to 1 Corinthians, you can see this. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. And you'll see in your margin, all right? 14, 21, it says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a quote from Isaiah 28, 11. All right, and this passage in Isaiah 28, 11 can only be interpreted as reference to a foreign language. Let me say that again. Isaiah 28, 11 can only, can only, let me say it one more time, can only be interpreted as a real foreign language. So why do I say that? Isaiah is writing, all right, um, to Israel who is rejecting God. And not only rejecting God, they're making fun of Isaiah. You just babble along line after line, word after word. You don't have anything important to say. You're so immature in what you say. And so God gives this promise through Isaiah, um, and of, of Isaiah 28, 11, and, and that they will be taken captive. And guess what language they will hear as a sign of judgment against them? The language of the Assyrians. That's the language. That's exactly what he's thinking. You're going to be taken captive, and you're going to hear a foreign tongue. And the foreign tongue is by the Assyrians, because that's who took them captive. That's exactly what happened in 722 B.C. That's exactly what happened. You can't interpret Isaiah 28, 11 any other way. It's not a static utterances. It's not some special language nobody else knew. It's Assyrian. 
That's the only way it can be interpreted when you look at the context. Who, he is, who he's writing to, who the judgment was against, and what happened in history. All right? 1 Corinthians 14, 10 through 11, all right, r- relates tongues. Also, if you go 14, 10 through 11, look at this. This is another reason, all right, that, that, that they directly point to speaking in tongues as known foreign languages. Obviously, Acts 2 does. Here we see that Acts 14, um, uh, verse 21 definitely is speaking about that in the context that means all the tongues would be that. But also look at verses 10 and 11. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Paul clarifies. He's making sure when he's talking about tongues, he uses another word for languages here to clarify I'm speaking about real languages here. So it's not, it's not implicit here. It's explicit that in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, all right, 14 being the one that's dealt most with with tongues, all right, that it's explicit that it's speaking of real foreign languages. You can't understand it any other way. Paul assures of that in verses 10 and 11 and in verse 21 by saying, we're talking about the Assyrians here. Isaiah 28, 11. All right, the fourth reason the gift of tongues and acts in 1 Corinthians are the same is both passages describe a similar response by unbelievers to the tongues they heard and did not understand. In Acts, they said they were drunk. They, they saw this. A lot of them, they, they were like, oh my goodness, these people are drunk. What are they doing? And then it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, that they're mad. If a bunch of them just began to speak in tongues with no interpretation, they would think they were mad. There's the same kind of response. They understand what's going on. The, same, the audience responds very similarly. All right? The fifth reason the gift of tongues is in Acts and 1 Corinthians are the same is both passages show the close relationship between tongues and prophecy. All right? Both of them, all right, in Acts 2, all right, shows a close relationship between tongues and prophecy because later in that same sermon, that after they speak in, um, in tongues in Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel, which is a prophecy. And he's showing them, and which also says that people will prophesy in the last days. We'll come back to that. And he's showing the close relationship between tongues and prophecy. In 1 Corinthians, all right, chapter 14, you also see a close relationship between tongues and prophecy. All right, they're they're interrelated. All right, and in fact, 1 Corinthians 14 is mostly of Paul rebuking the church at Corinth for the abuse of tongues. They were doing it all wrong, and he was saying it's bet prophecy would be greater than tongues. It's more useful than tongues in the gathered assembly of believers. All right, so there's a, there's a connection here. So let me read you this quote here by Nathan Busnitz. While continuations, what's continuations that that word means? Continuations are those who believe that these gifts like tongues um, uh, depends on what you understand of prophecy. Uh, believe the word of knowledge, um, someone given the gift of healing. Uh, not that healing doesn't take place. Everybody, I think, still believes that. But, so that's what continuationist means. They believe that the gift of tongues continues. While continuationists acknowledge that the New Testament gift of prophecy is essentially the same in both Acts and 1 Corinthians, they simultaneously contend that the gift of tongues in each book is inherently different. Now, how do you do that? How do you just decide, okay, it's, it's different here, but prophecy is the same. And in fact, prophecy can be defined in many different ways, and you see it in the Bible. That prophecy can be defined as foretelling, proclaiming the word of God, and also foretelling. All right? And there's an agreement, the understanding of prophecy in both of these passages. You know, we agree with that, and we believe it's closely related to tongues, but the tongues are different. It doesn't make sense. 
that they're using. And again, Paul and Luke were closely related, and they spent a lot of time together. All right? So let's move on. The sixth reason the gift of tongues and acts in 1 Corinthians are the same is both passages present languages that were translatable. All right? They were translatable. They were real foreign languages. Here's what I mean. Again, Nathan Booz explains this well. On the day of Pentecost, Jewish pilgrims from various parts of the world did not need an interpreter to understand words spoken in their mother, mother tongues. But in the congregation in Corinth, a translator was needed so that anyone who did not know the language being spoken could be edified. Thus, the gift of interpretation confirms that the nature of tongues in 1 Corinthians consists of authentic foreign languages. The word, all right, to interpret, which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to mean translated. Translated. It's the same word. To interpret, to translate. They're translating a real language, not some gibberish. And I think we'll see that here as we continue to go. Um, the seventh reason of the gift of tongues, the gift of tongues in, in Acts and 1 Corinthians um, are the same, is proper hermeneutics demanded. So what in the world are hermeneutics? All right? They're principles, all right, used to rightly interpret the Bible. All right? They're principles that we use to rightly understand what the Bible says. One of the most basic principles of hermeneutics demands that the clearer passage of Scripture is used to interpret the less clear passage. Let me say that again. One of the basic principles of hermeneutics, how to understand the Bible, is that the clearest passage is used to understand the less clear passage. And everybody agrees in Acts 2 that it's the clear passage. Everybody gets it. This is definitely real foreign languages that people were miraculously able to speak fluently. Everybody agrees that. Everybody that's got a mind, all right? I'm not trying to be insulting, all right? But that's just true. Everybody believes that on both sides of this, this, this I don't know, argument or disagreement, all right? So you use that passage to bring understanding to the passage that's not as clear. And that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. So you, you use what happens in Acts 2 to bring it greater understanding to those chapters because it's clear, all right? So those are just seven um, reasons I believe uh, they're the same. So I, I need to address a few other arguments by some who say that tongues and, or languages and acts in 1 Corinthians are different. And that, go ahead and turn, if you haven't turned already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. All right? 1 Corinthians 12, 10. All right? He's speaking about the different kinds of gifts here that God gives miraculously to all believers have a spiritual gift. Verse 10 says, And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to, uh, to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, um, your translation may see there's, notice this phrase, various or different kinds of tongues or languages. Therefore, some make the assumption there are at least two different categories for tongues, human and heavenly. This is where they get this from. All right, there's the human languages and heaven language, heavenly languages. The word kind here, different kinds, here is the word genos or genos, and it means families or groups, right? Ling linguists, people who study languages, refer to languages in, uh, in families and groups. There are various families of languages in the world. And this is Paul's point here. Uh, this is proven when we look at the way he uses the word kind, the exact same kind, the exact same word here, kind, kind of language, all right, in the exact same grammar, all right, 
in the same context of speaking in tongues, and we just read this verse, flip back over to 1 Corinthians 14, 10, all right? There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world. That word kinds is the exact same word used in the exact same order of grammar as 1 Corinthians 12, 10. So there you see the many kinds, it's the exact same word, and, and, and it's... It, as various kinds. In 14.10, there's no dispute that he's speaking of different families or of foreign languages. That's what he says. It's different families in the, he's in the world. He's talking about that. So in the same context of speaking about tongues and various kinds, all right, genos is the Greek word there, various kinds, he uses these in the same context because when you, when you look for meaning of words, you look for not just, okay, here's the different meanings. There's a lot, it can be a lot of different meanings for a word. But in order to understand what the word means, you have to understand it in its context. These two are in the exact same context of what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. All right? So we, we look again, and we, one says of, of, of the world. He's obviously, these tie together. The phrases are grammatically identical. All right? And, and using the same context, therefore, they mean the same thing. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, let's look at that. This is another argument. In fact, this is the, the one a lot of people bring up. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I'll go ahead and read verse 2 too. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. In verse 3, if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. All right, so you see that, that phrase, the tongues of angels. And some say that this tongues of angels refers to heavenly languages that the church of Corinth used and even sometimes conversed in. All right, however, the context dictates that this is a hyperbole. What's a hyperbole? If you don't know, I'm going to tell you. All right, exaggerated statements or claims that are, are not meant to be taken literally. It's an exaggeration. It's to prove a point. You, you, you use something, that, that this exaggerated language just to prove a point. And that's what Paul is doing here. And how do I know that? Because he does it three times in a row. So just in case we don't get it one time, the hyperbole, he gives us three examples of hyperbole so we make sure we understand he's speaking in hyperbole. Exaggerated language to prove a point. So I have you a chart. All right, how about this, all you uh, engineers? I got a chart for you, all right? All right, so we're going to see over here the normal experience the superlative or extreme expression, the hyperbole, that which transcends Paul's personal experience, and love superiority. I mean, the whole issue here, and was what, not, what was not going on in the church at Corinth, was there was no love going on. It was all about me, 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 and my gift, and especially those who spoke in tongues. They were a huge problem in the church at Corinth. So Paul has to take him over his knee and let him have it. So here he is, he's going to prove a hyperbole, exaggerated language, all right? So it's hard for me to do both at the same time. So here are tongues. If I speak with the tongues of men... All right, that's a normal experience. And then he, he uses this transcended language and it is a, 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 a superlative or hyperbole and of angels. Then you see it again. If I have the gift of prophecy, there's the normal experience and here's the hyperbole. And know all mysteries. Could Paul know all mysteries? No. And all knowledge, have all, no. And if I have all the faith, so as to remove mountains, he doesn't have all those. He's speaking exaggerated language. Giving. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender or give my body to be burned. He hasn't done that. All right? And so it's just showing this is hyperbole. He's speaking in exaggerated language to prove a point about love. You can, I can have this, 
But I could have, a, I could have even this ten times and speak like angels. I, I could have the gift of prophecy, and I could, then I could know everything there is to know. That's impossible because only God knows that, right? And, and I could give my possessions to the poor, and I could give up over and above. He's exaggerating here. Now, now some of you might oh, that's a pretty weak argument. It's actually not a weak argument. You might think that, but it's not. Um, uh, it, it's definitely hyperbole, and, and um, Paul uses it in other places in Scripture very similarly. All right, so if somebody wants to insist on taking the phrase tongues of angels as referring to an unknown heavenly language or unknown heavenly languages, it's important to note that whenever the Bi an angel speaks in the Bible, they always spoke in a real language the people were hearing understood. Always. Capital A, capital L, capital W, capital A, capital Y, capital S. In every language, always. Always. Some examples, you want to write them down, Genesis 19, Exodus 33, Joshua 5, Judges 13. All the announcements of Jesus' birth in the Gospels, all spoken in the book of Daniel. We saw this when we were studying the book of Daniel, Bible's birth and breakfast. When the angel shows up to speak, he always speaks in a language that people can understand. He's always speaking in their language. Always. There's not one exception. You can go ahead and study for 30 years and find if there's an exception. You won't find one, I promise you. No one's ever found one. There's not there. Always they speak in the same tongue. So it, the tongue of angels, all right, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean different unknown languages. And that's the only verse that even mentions tongues of angels. And people take that out of context to, to say it's got different languages. Also, listen to this. It makes no sense that the tongues of angels refers to heavenly languages if there's a point that tongues will cease. Look at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 8. All right, we're going to come back to this a little bit in a little bit too for another point. Look what it says. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. So if, if tongues are a heavenly language or angelic language, it makes no sense that they would cease at some time if they're the tongues of angels. A lot of people think, here's another heresy, we will not become angels, just in case you want to know. We are not angels. We will never be angels. We don't get to heaven and get wings. And first of all, angels don't have wings. I hope you know that. Cherubim have wings, not angels. Seraphim do, but not angels. They're different. They're angelic beings. I don't want to get into that, okay? But we don't become angels. We're people. We get, we get glorified bodies and we go to heaven. We don't become angels. But the issue here is that if they're really heavenly languages, angelic languages, they would never cease if they're angelic languages. That's the way they speak. It shows that it's, it's not. Uh, then 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Here, here's one that's brought up a lot. All right? 1 Corinthians 14, tongue, 2, 2. <laughs> Let me read that to you. My tongue's getting tired in tongues. Woo. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. This is the, the people think that tongues are only understandable by God, by God argument. All right? This is the, the, their argument is that, that it's obviously there, there are some unknown language to any, it's not known foreign languages because they're only understandable to God. Well, um, that's just not true. What's the three most important rules when you study the Bible? Over here, what's the most important rules? Context, what's the next important rule? Context, what's the next important rule? And we'll give you a chance. Context. Context, context, context. And this verse is taken out of context over and over and over and over again. And so much of this is taken out of context. They don't, they're not looking what Paul is trying to get across. Paul is saying here that if someone stands up in the congregation to speak in the language no one in the congregation knew, only God would understand what the person is saying. The no one 
Okay, no one here referred to in this book, in this verse, is not a universal no one. You got to interpret no one or not anybody. All right, whatever you what want to say there. By the context, it's not a universal. Nobody in the world understands. It's not what it's saying. No one. Instead, no one here is the context dictates that no one is the essential, I mean, is the assembly of the local church who heard the message of tongues being spoken. It's obvious when you look at the context. That's the whole issue. He says, you're, all these tongues, are you're speaking in tongues, and no one's interpreting. No wonder no one understands except God. But if there's interpretation, which he goes forth on the rest of the chapter and just hammers, there's got to be interpretation. There's got to be interpretation. Then guess what? Everybody can understand. That's the whole point of this of verse, four, verse 2 of chapter 14. Is no one understands because it's not being interpreted. It, it, chapter 14 is a lot of rebuke, a rebuke of the misuse of tongues. Um, one abuse, obviously, was with this abuse of uh, not interpreting, which made the, the speak, speaking of tongues useless. They were useless. Now, the rest of the convocation, if this happened, would therefore be left unedified and confused. There's a problem. Let me say this. If this happened, if there was tongues that went out and they were not interpreted, okay? Woo! I'm all right. All right, so. So, if they went uninterpreted, they'd become, listen, listen, they would become, they would be unedified, listen, and confused. That's important. Paul clearly rebukes speaking in tongues that are not interpreted, for only God can understand, all right? And the, the, he's, re, he, he's rebuking them because it, it, everybody could understand if somebody would interpret, all right? Look at 14.4 four, in the same vein. Verse 14.4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Listen, the phrase one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself is a rebuke by Paul. It is a hard rebuke by Paul. One who speaks in a tongue that's not interpreted, that's without context, edifies himself. Anybody see a problem with that? The, just the problem that the gift of tongues, like all other spiritual gifts, is for the edification of the body of Christ, not for self-edification. Where well, it says right here that it's self-edification. Well, let me give you about ten verses that says the spiritual gifts are only for the, the, the edification of other people. You take your one, I'll take my ten. Right? It's just crazy. You take one verse, yeah, this is different. It's not different. It's a rebuke by Paul saying, you're about yourself. And that's exactly what he's doing through the whole context. You're all about your gift. I got tongues, listen to me. Woohoo! That's what they were doing. And he said, no, no. That's edifying yourself. Look at me. Woo, look how great I am. He said, no, your gift's supposed to be like all the other gifts. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke, and, and, and you can see that. I'll give you some passages of Scripture, all right? Uh, um, 12, 7 even, all right? 12, 7 speaks about um, the common good, all right? But each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 14, 3, all right? But one who prophesies speaks for, to men for edification and exhortation and, con and consolation, the second half of verse 4. The one who prophesies edifies the church. In verse 12, so also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, some of them were overzealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what? The edification of yourself? No, the edification of the church. Look at, look at verse 17. And for you are giving thanks and, good and, and well enough, but the other person is not edified. Is he saying, well, it's okay, you edify yourself and nobody else gets edified. We're cool with that. He's not saying that, obviously. Then look at verse 26. 
He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. He's talking about the whole body. In the first Peter 10, he actually said, that all, he gives another list of, um, first Peter 4.10, he gives a list of uh, spiritual gifts, and he said, this is for the, for the good of other people to build up the church. The fact that uninterpreted tongues would also leave people not only unedified, but confused, goes against the biblical principle Paul laid out for the assembly of the church. Look in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. And this is in context of people abusing the gift of tongues. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not a God of confusion. If a tongue goes uninterpreted, where only God can understand, all right, all right, then, then nobody's edified and people are confused. What in the world is that? Just like I was. And often church services I went to, there wasn't interpreted. And nobody called out that person. You're wrong. You can leave. That's what they should have done. You just used your gift, if it was a gift, in a wrong manner. We'll talk to you later. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But if that was the case, if Paul says you're not supposed to say anything. If there's no, here's, the, here's the picture. They knew who their interpreters were. They knew who had the gift of interpretation. They had, you had the gift of tongues. So he'd look around. Is there a guy here with the gift of interpretation? I, no, there's not. I better shut up today. All right, that was what happened. And uh, it's obvious from the context. So the evidence for tongues in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, 14 being the same gift is overwhelming. Let me also mention that, it, that, that what is passed off and practiced as a gift of tongues today does not match what is presented in the New Testament. For they violate every single instruction Paul gives on the proper understanding and use of the gift of tongues. Just like the church at Corinth. He'd have to go, all right, 3 Corinthians. Let me go, revisit this heresy and this wrong use of gifts with all of those who are practicing those things or so-called practicing those things today. All right, listen, here's some of them. This is 1 Corinthians 14, taken from them. Tongues must, must be a language. Glossa always means a language, never gibberish. Number two, tongues must be interpreted. Not always happening. Tongues must be ordered. You ever been, maybe you've not been, I've been in a service, well, let's just all use our gift of tongues today, and they're just all going at it. And he's saying you don't do that one at a time, he says. One at a time, not everybody. Tongues must be under control. All right, you got to be able to refrain if it's not your turn, is what he was saying. Tongues are, listen, tongues are not for everyone. Paul makes that clear. Tongues are not associated with a greater spirituality, and that is taught all the time. Tongues are not associated with a second blessing. They're not. And we'll deal with that in, in a few minutes. Tongues are not a prayer language. That's even easier to disprove. A prayer language. There's three verses in the scripture that are used for that. And, and none of them in context mean a prayer language. In fact, the one that's used most often in Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit um, intercedes for you on, behalf, on your behalf with groanings too deep for words. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit who's groaning, and they're too deep for words. And it actually literally means no words at all. And we all would agree that people believe they have prayer language. It's a language. There's words. And that's not what Romans 8 is speaking. When also in the context here, when it's talking about praying in tongues, it's in the very same context of making sure it's interpreted. It was a public prayer to, to, so for the body to be edified if somebody was there who had to get to that interpretation. I don't have time to go into all that. All right? Tongues are... are um, so there's all those things. The church of Corinth was breaking. And you see those when they're quote-unquote manifested today. That's the same thing they're doing. Well, hopefully we've answered in some way the question, what is the gift of tongues? 
right? It's the miraculous ability, right? The miraculous ability God gave to some to speak in a foreign language fluently that they had never spoken or studied before. That's what it is. It's what it's always been. So let's now answer the second question. What is the purpose of tongues? All right? There are three explicit purposes. I'm going to hurry up here, okay? There are three explicit purposes of tongues laid out in the New Testament. Proclamation of the gospel. Um, uh, proclamation of the gospel to the Jewish people. Uh, confirmation of the inauguration of the new covenant for all nations. And condemnation of the nation of Israel, rejection of the Messiah. So let's look br- briefly at each one of these. Now I do mean briefly. First of all, proclamation of the gospel to the Jewish people. This is one of the, or Israel. It's one of the, um, one of the uh, um, purposes. Uh, we saw this in Acts 2, 1 through 13. Notice the phrase again, Acts verse 11. It said, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And at first that was amazing they heard that because they had never heard the mighty deeds of God spoken in anything but Hebrew or Aramaic. Right, that's all they'd ever heard. Now they're hearing in Gentile languages. Whoa. But they're hearing the mighty deeds of God. So it's proclamation of the gospel to the Jewish people in Israel. And you see that because they respond in Acts 2. Secondly, purpose, confirmation, and the inauguration of the new covenant for all the nations. If you look back at, at uh, um, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, I'm not going to read all those. Peter explains that what they just witnessed... In, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Joel and some other places that points to the fact that the new covenant has now been inaugurated or begun and therefore we are now in the last days awaiting the second coming of Jesus. Remember when I preached through this, this is the last days. All right, so he, he, he's speaking here, he's saying what you're seeing is now the Messiah has come, the new covenant is enacted, it's inaugurated and the, we're in the last days, it's, we're waiting for the second coming now. Uh, th- this new covenant was for all nations, not just the Jews. Remember the mission of the church in, in Acts 1-8, right? To, you receive power and the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we saw in the book of Acts, when the gospel went to Samaria, what happened? They came to know Christ and there was also the evidence of speaking in tongues by some. All right? And then they go and, and they go to the, they, they go to the, the uh, Gentiles. All right? This is getting further out. Okay, we're Samaria, and now we're going to other, other parts of the world. The Gentiles, there's evidence of speaking in tongues when they first come to know Christ. And then the, the Old Testament believers that only believe the baptism of John the Baptist. Right? They're waiting for the Messiah. They also speak in tongues. All three of them are just like the book of Acts. We're taking the gospel to all these places. All right? And it was confirming all right, the inauguration of the new covenant, and the new covenant was for all people, and there's no JV and varsity Christians. The Samaritans and the Gentiles and the people who, for, from the Old Testament believers, all of them, when they come into the new covenant, they're all one. That's what was confirming. All through Acts, we see that. Um, the third thing, the third purpose, is condemnation of the nation of Israel to rejection of the Messiah. And I really want you to see this because I think this will really help you when you think about tongues and what their purpose was and what they, what they were, all right? Look again with me at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 22. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 22. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is, a, is, is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to believers. Verse 22 says, tongues are for a sign. A sign of what and to whom? You've got to ask that question. A sign of what and to whom? 
All right? Verse 21 tells us of what? We've already referenced this verse, all right? And we've seen this quote of Isaiah 28, 11, all right? And when you understand that context of the passage in Isaiah, it's critical that we understand, we understand what Paul is trying to communicate about tongues, all right? This was a, this was a, a prophecy in Isaiah 20, 20, 11 that came true, and he was saying, you're going to hear foreign tongues is going to be a source of judgment and condemnation for your rejection of me. Uh, Isaiah was preaching, and they're making fun of him. They're saying, you got elementary teaching, yada, yada, yada. And God said, if you like unintelligible speech, then I'm going to send you into exile, and you'll hear unintelligible speech. Because it's going to be the language of the Assyrians, and you will not be able to understand it. When a Jew hears unintelligible speech, it's a sign to him that God has judged or contemned, condemned him or her as guilty. That's what it is. It's a sign. And when, they would, when a Jew would hear this verse... All right? And they would know exactly. This is Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. This is a sign for condemnation that we have rejected the Messiah. And verse 22 says that the tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And when it quotes Isaiah 28, it points to the truth that tongues were a sign of condemnation for Jews. Because it says, listen, not, it says in, in verse, I will speak to this people. What people? Gentiles? Jews. I will speak to this, gen, this people, Jews. And so it's a sign of condemnation to unbelieving Jews who would come into the assembly of Christians worshiping. I don't have time to look at all these verses, but if you remember back in, in, in Acts 18, um, Paul went to Corinth, and he goes to, daily to the synagogue, and he's preaching, proclaiming the gospel. And then it says the next day, in, in, ver, in verse 5, he goes to Titius's house, a believer, and guess where his house was? Right next to the synagogue. And it's evidence that that's where the church was meeting, the believers, right? And guess who might just wander in every once in a while, um, because Paul, during the, during the week, was going to the synagogue and preaching. And then they would meet on the first day of the week in Titius's house, and they may come and have some more questions. So could have a Jewish person wandered into the assembly of believers in Corinth? Yes, they could have. And, th and if there was a tongue, it would have been a sign of condemnation to them based upon Isaiah 28, 11. Um, and we even told in 18.8 in that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and this is Acts 18.8, believed in the Lord. So to exercise the gift of tongues when unbelieving Jews are not present would be exercising the gift in a manner not keeping with its purpose. This is another proof that what is being presented as tongues today is not biblical for tongues today are presented as exhortation from God to believers. Not a sign for unbelieving Israel. And you can't find one verse in the scripture that says that tongues were ever used for exhortation to believers. It's not there. Always for unbelievers, and in context here, we see it's for Israel. Number three, it's the gift of tongues for today. I've uh, got to briefly cover this. Um, uh, to briefly answer that question, look with me at, at 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Here Paul speaks of three of the gifts that were much more public, um, than many of the rest, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Notice that prophecy and knowledge are spoken of in the same way. Prophecy and knowledge, it says they will be done away. It uses the same verb. All right? It means to render inoperative by something else. All right? they, they are mentioned together in verse 9. For we know in part knowledge and we prophesy in part. There's no mention of tongues there. So what will make prophecy and knowledge be done away with and become inoperative? Verse 10 says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. It's using the same verb. It'll be done away. Notice again these, these words done away. It's referring to prophecy and knowledge. Therefore, they will be made inoperative when the perfect comes. 
Now, a lot of people, there's a different understanding of what the perfect was. It could be close of the canon or end of the early church, the rapture, the second coming of Jesus. We don't have time to define that. Um, uh, but at, the, at this point, there will be no need, whatever the perfect is, uh, for the gifts of prophecy or knowledge. Now, look back at verse 8 and notice if there are tongues, they will cease. It's a different word, verb. They will cease. Uh, um, it's different than done away. And it means they will in, end in and of themselves. They'll just end. Something won't make them end. It, it, will, it will just end. And the fact that Paul uses two different verbs here points to the truth that tongues will cease before prophecy and knowledge are brought to an end by the perfect. The fact tongues are not mentioned in verses 9 and 12 also points to this conclusion. So when, we, when, when will or when did tongues cease? I believe the context of the entire New Testament points to the gift of tongues as being a temporary sign gift. A temporary sign gift due to its purposes, which we saw, that God used in the early church um, and is no longer needed and ceased during the early church. Tongues, listen to this, are not mentioned in any of the other epistles. No other epistles is mentioned. John who wrote two of the, 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 the later books, John and Revelation, the Gospel of John and Revelation, he doesn't mention them in his books either. Tongues vanished off the scene after the first century with the dying off the apostles and the completion of the canon of Scripture. With the completion of the canon of Scripture, there was no longer a need for tongues. And I also believe there's no longer a need for prophecy in the sense of foretelling. But that was done away with as well. Tongues are only seen in the, listen, are only seen from that time until the early 1900s in the 4th century A.D. among the Montanists who deny the deity of Christ. Who wants to be affiliated with those guys? They deny, and that's the only time tongues are seen, and even in the visible church. And the Montanists were heretics. They didn't believe that God, Jesus was God. All right, so um, I know this is a lot. All right, I know this is a lot. Um, it's a lot for me, and I've even pared it down. I know you're hard, it's hard to believe that, right? Um, but let me just mention two more things here before we, we close. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people see baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, that, and what happens there, then you begin to speak in tongues. What's interesting, in the same context, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, listen to what Paul says. For what, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. He's speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We were all baptized into one body. He's speaking about all the believers of Corinth. And he had already taught not all of them had tongues. When we come to Christ, we're baptized into the Holy Spirit. We're, and the word baptism means to immerse. We're immersed into the Holy Spirit. All right? Also, the word spirit-filled. Right? Are you a part of a spirit-filled church? May I ask you that question? Okay, the spirit-filled, we know from Ephesians 5.18, is a command. It's a present passive, present passive imperative. It's to continue to keep being filled with the Spirit. It's a command. It's something that we're called to do. is to put ourselves in the flow of God's grace and the Spirit and be controlled by the Spirit. So if somebody asks me if, I, if our, our church is Spirit-filled or if I'm Spirit-filled, here's my answer. Sometimes. Sometimes I'm Spirit-filled. How about you? Yeah, sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I'm not. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled. Not that we speak in tongues or all these other things. Spirit-filled means to be obeying the, word, obeying the Lord and being controlled by the Spirit. And my good friend Tommy Nelson, pastor, rightly states, the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement are, an, are American institutions. Why, why do you say that? First of all, it's where they showed back up in the 1900s with uh, Parham. Um, why also they're American institutions? Here, here's why. It's perfectly suited to an American. It's fast. You get fast spirituality that way. You don't have to study you don't have to obey to get it to, or to be sanctified through it. And it's emotional. That's why we play baseball and not cricket. Right? 
It's emotional. Cricket's not emotional. You never get emotional in a cricket game. All right, we're emotional beings in America. And it's taken off in America, and then it was taken all over the world. Now, I'm not saying everything in the charismatic movement is bad. All right, there's a lot of things we can learn. But I think this is because I don't think it's biblical. I think it causes more harm to the gospel than help. So, so what? Um, let God's word be your guide to truth and evaluate everything in light of his word. Listen, thoroughly. Take your time. Don't think you have to get it today or tomorrow. Just keep studying. Keep studying to show yourself approved. A workman who is not ashamed. Keep studying the word of God. Use your gift, whatever it is, to build up the body. We can use all of our gifts to edify ourselves, can't we? We can. We've got to be careful of that. Third, we're all on the varsity. Isn't that good news? Don't let anybody tell you, well, I speak in tongues, man. I've got this special relationship with God I wish you had, right? You wish you had. No, I've got a great relationship with God. And it's based upon what Jesus did on the cross, not on my gift or my lack of. It's based on Jesus, not on me. I'm so glad, grateful for that, aren't you? And let me say, if you, have, if you know someone who speaks in tongues, all right, and they don't believe you had to speak in tongues to, to, to be a Christian, they're a brother or sister in Christ. You're good, all right? And, and you should work with them and to, to get the gospel out, all right? But I would encourage you to sit down with the Bible in context and, and encourage them to challenge them on it, all right? I'm not, I've got friends who disagree with me on this, all right? And, and that's okay. They're friends. They love Jesus just like I do. I'm not better than them because I don't believe that it's still operable today. And I don't believe, even if it was operable today, I definitely don't believe what's happening today is what was happening in the Bible and what should be happening if it was operable. Well, one more question for all of us. Do you know Jesus? He is the one the gifts are, used, are to be used to point to and to glorify. It's all about Jesus. And if we get things mixed up with the church of Corinth and it becomes all about us and our gifts, then Jesus isn't glorified. We are. So I pray that you know Jesus, that you trust in him as your Savior, and know him because that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the attentiveness of these people through a lot of stuff. Lord, I pray that uh, myself and all the people gathered here would continue to get into your word, to study your word, to understand what your word has to say, not only on this subject, but all subjects, so that we are rightly understanding of you and your work in this world. Lord, remind us all about Jesus. Would help us be humble as we think about these things. But Lord, in the areas we need to be bold, in the areas that are clear in Scripture, it'll help us be clear as well, because that's a loving thing to do. Lord, help us now as we sing from our hearts to you. Uh, thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.